Welcome to Without Conviction Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Trentacosta, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with a very long-awaited and well-anticipated guest, Mr. Jeffrey Deskovic. And in the title, I, I said this is the conviction of a justice warrior, and that is truly putting it mildly. Um, Mr. Deskovic has been through some of the most horrendous experiences um, that one could imagine, especially living in a so-called free country like ours. Um, I'm going to go right ahead and just say welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mr. Deskovic. It's, it's really an honor to be speaking with you. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate your persistence as well. It has been a long time coming. Absolutely. Um, I want to say I actually heard about you quite a few years ago, um, and that is because my own brother is or, or has been claiming innocence, claiming his own innocence on his conviction, uh, of which he's been serving um, 30 plus years um and uh he you know he actually looked up to you as an inspiration uh for his own his own fight so i want to thank you for that as well wow Um, thank you for sharing that with me yeah um so i i want to give uh, for those who are new to um the the fight for justice reform uh in this in this country, I, I want to give them a little bit of a background on what you experienced. And I want to preface that with the fact that you were, you were a child at the time. Um, do, how old were you exactly when, um, when the initial charges came about? I was 16. 16 years old. Wow. Um, and, you know, I know those are very formidable years. Um, you know, you're just discovering who you are as a, as a person um, and maybe gaining a little bit of independence uh, away from, you know, the, you know, the, the restrictions of childhood. And, um, you know, just as you're beginning to grow in that aspect that was just snatched away from you. Um, would you share what the, what the charges were, uh, that you were facing? Yeah, Yeah, it was a, it was a murder and rape of a, of a classmate in high school. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that in and of itself had to be pretty traumatic, um, for, for you and for any child, um, who might know that, you know, the victim, uh, that has to be just a traumatic lifelong uh, scar on on the mind and the heart of uh, any child who who knows uh, a classmate or a friend who who's been killed or just you know anybody who's passed away that's so young um, but you know that it didn't it didn't end there um, what led up to you actually being charged can you uh, bring us bring us back to those those few days Sure. So the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school and 
because in school I was quiet, I was to myself, I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. Um, that some of the kids in the high school told the police that they might want to speak to me. So that's the, you know, because I didn't fit in. So that's what brought me to the uh, uh, on the put me on the police radar. And another aspect of that was they said that uh, I was. They thought that my uh, having an emotional reaction to a classmate's murder. I mean, albeit somebody that was, you know, I barely knew her. She was in two of my classes, a freshman, one as a sophomore. She. They felt that it was suspicious for me to be, you know, have emotional reaction, like there was some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for something that I had done. And a reinforcing factor was they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which uh, purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. Uh, so a uh, So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like, well, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Uh, let us know if you hear anything. Stop in, stop in, stop in from time to time. Uh, you know, they would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was was correct. Prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. So this uh, unexpected early opportunity to do this quasi-police work along with my age, uh, 16, was how they were able to pull the wool over my eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, in addition, I want to mention I came from a single-parent household. Mm -hmm. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that intersected with the good cop bad cop technique where one officer was pretending to be my friend and the other one was being more aggressive mm -hmm. i began to look up at the officer who was pretending to be my friend as as a as a father figure so eventually they yeah so eventually they got me to agree to take the lie detector test so instead of so the next day instead of going to the school i went to the police station for the test uh, and because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother thought that I was in school, so they didn't know anything was wrong. Oh they God. drove me from yeah. So they drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, New York, the suburbs, to uh, the town of Brewster in Putnam County. Uh, so it was about forty minutes away by car, which meant that I was not able to leave anymore on my own. I was dependent upon the police. Uh, there were there were three cops who came with me from Peekskill. You know, naturally they put me in the car with the good cop uh, by myself. Mm -hmm. And then the polygraphist was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as a police officer. Uh, he never read me my rights. He uh, gave me a brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but I didn't understand. But then I thought, well, I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Mm -hmm. Let's just get on with it. Right. Uh, there was no attorney present. I didn't give any. Get, wasn't given anything to eat the entire time I was there. He, from there, he put me in a small room, and he gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. Mm -hmm. And from there, he attached me to the machine, and then he l launched into his third-degree tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept mm -hmm. asking me the same questions over and over again. And uh, he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Oh, my goodness. And towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. 
and uh, that really shot my fear through the roof. And, mm-hmm. and at that point, the cop who had been pretending to be my friend told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he was holding them off, but he couldn't do so any longer. That I had to help myself. Then he added, you know, just tell them what they want. You know, that just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home. You're not going to be arrested. Wow. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, yeah. not thinking about the long term, just being concerned for my safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and that mm-hmm. nobody else did either loomed quite large in my mind. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, there's this threat he's introduced, there's this false promise, uh, overwhelmed emotionally too. And so uh, I took the out which they offered and I made up a story based on the information which they gave me in the course of the interrogation and six mm-hmm. weeks run up to that mm-hmm. by the time it was all said and done i collapsed on the floor into a fetal position crying uncontrollably oh my uh, obviously i was arrested i was charged with the murder and rape wow wow um yeah i'm i i just i hope that um there are parents listening to this um and you know we should never have to imagine our children being in a situation like this, but it's almost necessary um, in in our current state with uh, our criminal justice system that we equip our children uh, to deal with situations like like what you experienced um, and e- equip them with the defense mechanisms. Uh, that wouldn't come naturally to a child, you know, um, because that's exactly what they prey on. They prey on what you, you know, what your vulnerable points are. And, um, you know, they, it seems like they got you from every angle, um, every angle. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it shocks me every time, every time I hear this and I can't even imagine how, you know, you, I, I, you have to relive this, this experience and you, you know, you speak so eloquently when, you know, when you're talking about this, uh, does it seem almost like it was, uh, like, like you're looking back at a movie or something, or do you, you know, does it still not seem real to you? Yeah, it still does not seem real to me. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and, and speaking of equipping uh, our children with what to do, uh, the instruction that parents should give to their children is, you know, is when the police want to speak with you. Yeah, you give them your name and, you know, where, where your address. And then after that, you know, you should insist that, that you know, you, you want a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing the cops need to say to you. They can't wait for them to provide you with a lawyer, and that'll level the playing field and it'll prevent them, uh, the police, from uh, from coercing you, from overreaching you, like what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the innocence of suspects often works against them, and so, you know, they think, well, why do, you, why do I need a lawyer? I didn't do anything. And then they, there's concern, too, that uh, asking for a lawyer is going to make you appear guilty, but, you know, it's actually the best move that, that can happen. And mm-hmm. I want to lastly point out that there have been instances where the police actually co-opt the parent and turn the parent into an agent of coercion. Oh, wow. Well, come on, Johnny, just tell them what happened so we can get out of here. 
you know, they got something on you here. You you did this. Why why do you think we're here? They're not gonna be doing all this for that. So let's just tell them they can get and and no, your your child's not gonna get out of there until many many years later. So I just want to mention that cautionary uh, aspect to it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now going forward, um, so you pretty much grew up. You spent the remainder of your your teen years uh, into adulthood in prison. Um, and I, I recall you uh, discussing at one point um, that transfer. It, was it on your 18th birthday? Well, well, I mean, I, uh, from the arrest, I mean, I, I got bailed out after about 35 days. I had the trial, which I lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, despite the DNA not not matching me, um, and you know, my public defender was was uh, was was terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, from when I lost the trial, so I was incarcerated from age uh, 17 to 32. Uh, I had been charged as an adult and um, sentenced as an adult, and I was oh, therefore wow. sent. To, I was therefore sent to a men's maximum security prison. You know, and that's. Yeah, so no, I, I never went to the, the youth. I only went to a maximum security prison, and that's where I was for 16 years. Wow. Um, so now you you mentioned there was DNA, and obviously that would have exonerated you from day one. You're obviously an innocent person. You've you know that's that's all been proven and uh, and then some. But what? So they only they only used that false confession that they got out of you is that correct yeah that was the only evidence they had against wow. me yes i mean the dna test results were admitted into the courtroom mm -hmm. but the prosecutor got around that by getting the medical examiner to commit fraud so when the mm -hmm. dna didn't match me he suddenly claimed oh i forgot that i document that i, I forgot to document medical evidence which showed the victim had been promiscuous uh, so he only came up with that after the DNA didn't match me. And because the victim's family was not coming to court, they had no idea what was being said about her in court, that they were trashing her reputation in the furtherance of wrongfully convicting me. Uh, and then on my public defender's end of it, like he never, he literally never tried to cross-examine this medical examiner. He never tried to discredit him that was making up this story. He never, uh, and the prosecutor not just uh, had, did that, but then he named another youth by name that he claimed that slept with the victim, mm -hmm. but he never had a DNA test performed uh, to prove that. He never even called them as a witness. He just made that unsupported argument to the jury. Oh, you know, my lawyer, my lawyer never, never, never cross-examined the medical examiner never explained the significance of the DNA not matching me. Mm -hmm. He never used the DNA test results to challenge the confession. Mm -hmm. He never called my alibi as a witness. Mm -hmm. He rarely met with me. Uh, he should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. So this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of that same public defender's office. Oh. And, and that and then specifically by the by the attorney uh that attorney representing him was supposed to be supervising my lawyer and so that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to give a sample and calling him as a witness wow um I, there are so many things that i want to jump on with everything that you just said i'm not i'm i'm not gonna jump on everything obviously but 
what I want to point out to our audience is um, how dire it is that we make a change um, in these preventing. We need to prevent these wrongful convictions and we need to hold accountable the officials who are, you know, who are they're breaking the law and they are victimizing these innocent people. Not only are you being victimized, but the victim in in the case uh, is being re-victimized. There is no justice being sought. It's almost slanderous what they're doing um, to the victims. There's no service for any victims in this case or the 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 family members of the victims in these cases it's it's a lose 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 situation it's a loss of life it's a loss of time it's a loss of uh, taxpayers money Uh, we really need to get on the ball and prevent these travesties from occurring in the future and we also need to make sure we get these innocent men and women out of prison and it's going to take a lot of public support and public pressure because we don't have the systems in place we don't have enough for the these conviction review boards and units um, to even scratch the surface of the wrongful convictions that are still out there um, so yeah I, I you know I thank you for shedding light on all of these really serious issues that are still very real and occurring daily still. Sure. And maybe the last thing I'll mention is because my interrogation was not videotaped or audio taped, there was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. Mm-hmm. And because of that, when they came to court to testify, they left out the threat and false promise from their story. Uh, my, my lawyer was uh, would not allow me to testify either. Um, and, you know, so, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, add it all up. Mm-hmm. A- a- add it all up. I was wrongfully convicted. And, I was, like I mentioned, I was given a 15-to-life sentence and mm-hmm. sent to a men, men's maximum security prison to the service. Unbelievable. Uh, now, how far into, how far into your um, sentencing did you really begin to fight and and then realize that you were going to get out of there or did you know it from day one that you were going to get out well i had the well i i mean i had the hope i had the i had the hope but you know i started out that way i kept that hope for the majority of the sentence but for the and the last year of what turned out to be the last year of my incarceration i mean you know i I had by that point, I had lost seven appeals. My appeals were over. I had wrote letters for four years looking for help, and you know, rarely got any answers. And uh, any, 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 I never got like a yes. And then I went, had gone to the parole board, and I got turned down for parole there. So at, at that point, I thought I was going to die in prison. Wow. And um, what was so? Tell me about your last, your final day when you finally walked out of there a free man? Sure, so, well, the day before, uh, the my cell door opened, and the guard opened the cell door, and, and uh, he told me I had a visit. And I asked him to double check, because I wasn't expecting a visit. 
and he made you know and it, sure enough i had a visit and so i remember as i was you know hurrying up going to the visiting room uh and i remember thinking to myself well who the heck came to see me mm-hmm. you know and uh when I got got in the prison room door, the the visiting room, there was this woman who was waving at me, and I didn't recognize her, but I just waved back. But I thought she thought I was somebody else, or maybe she remembered me from some other facility where I was at. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the guard came. I asked the guard who, who came to see me, and they asked me, "Well, don't you know who came to visit you?" And so because I didn't want the visit to get canceled, I said, "Yeah, of course I do," and I just walked over to this lady. And she introduced herself as my as my attorney, mm. uh, and uh, yeah, well, she mentioned her name was Nina Morrison. I mean, I had, we had only corresponded to the mail and, and a couple of phone calls. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she said uh, the DNA test results uh, are are in, you know. And I said, what what, what do you mean? That the items are not supposed to be tested for another day? Mm-hmm. And she said, no, they're 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 in. The results match the actual perpetrator, and you're you're going you're going home tomorrow. Oh. Wow, goosebumps! Wow. And I said, "No, I'm not." And she and we went back and forth like three times. And uh, I had this three and a half hour of mental paralysis, whereby I sat there and, you know, I literally held her. She held my hand for the next three and a half hours, and all these thoughts were going through my head, and I was just articulating that none of it had anything to do with my case, and one thought had nothing to do with the next. Right. And every now and every now and then, she would break in and say. Are you ready to talk about tomorrow? Uh-huh. And I would say, no, 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 we're not talking about tomorrow. Not entertaining that. Not going home because mm-hmm. you know I can't, I you can't, get... it, it, I can't, I can't hope anymore. Right. I can't take another heart break. Right. I can't hope right. anymore. Right. And so what made it real at the end was when she said, uh, "Well, look, the visit's almost over, so I need, you know, this. I'm gonna need your shoe size. I need your uh, suit size. It's a lot of work to be done with the media, and that's really what made it real." Yeah. And uh, but then, of course, five minutes later, a different fear came in my thought, came in my head, which was I thought that something was gonna happen between that day and the next, yeah. and the DA was gonna change her mind, and I wasn't gonna go anywhere. Of course, yeah, because how can yes, you? That was how can you trust anything at that point? Right. Right. Yeah. So that was the day before. Uh, the last day, uh, in, in early in the morning, the prisoner in the cell next to me uh, talked hard into giving me a shower. It was before they even knew that I was going to court. So, so I took a shower, and then uh, they, they they bring you like plastic uh, garbage bags to put your stuff into to then bring it to a room where they inventory everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember when I had first gotten to prison. Uh, so I heard two people talking, and they one of them said, "You know, man, if I win my appeal, I, I'm, I'm gonna it's gonna be like somebody in here hit the lottery mm-hmm. because I'm gonna leave them everything I had." So I, I that saying dawned on me, and I decided to live another man's dream. Oh, so wow! <laughs> and so I put I put the little bit of stuff that I felt like I needed, like my legal paperwork and a, a few limited other items in one bag, and everything else I put in these other bags. And so I rushed the bags down. When I opened my cell. I, I 
ran down like half a block uh-huh. and, and put the stuff in front of this uh, new other prisoner there that, you know, was just starting out his time and oh. didn't have any outside wow. support. And wow. he's like, oh, my God, thank you. Douglas. Never mind that. Just hurry up and put <laughs> get, put the stuff in yourself before the guard comes. Because yeah. you're not allowed to give anybody right, anything. Right, right, oh right. So God. then I, I ran back and forth from my cell and his cell with like three bags. You know, and then finally the guard starts yelling upstairs, you know, where am I? What the hell am I doing? <laughs> and I'm coming, I'm coming. You know, yeah, so I yeah. go downstairs a little bit and I'm, as I, I'm going to the pack up from I'm, I'm looking around, I'm trying to see anybody that I know and I'm waving goodbye to people. But, you know, I'm, I'm in a different prison. I had only been in this, this uh, Sing Sing. I'd only been there for 28 days, okay. you know, and that was about Elmira. So okay. I only knew a little bit of people that, you know, mainly just people that were in a different facility. Right. So I was looking to see people that um, I, I knew before. Right. And so, you know, they itemized everything and, you know, they, the typical lazy fashion, you say, look, we're not carrying all that stuff. And even that one, you know, bag that I put, they were not carrying all of that to the court. So you got to decide where, where are you sending this to? Wow. And, I the only address I knew at that point was the Innocence Project's address, so oh. I sent it to them. Okay. And, yeah. and, and, and then they took a photo. They took a, a photograph of me to get an ID, mm-hmm. a temporary ID. Okay. And it was time. It was time to go. So they come, this guard comes up to me with these uh, handcuffs and chain. You know, and I, what, what what are you doing here? I said to him, what. What are you doing here with that? I mean, you know, yeah. you know that I'm going home. Right. That's why you gave me the temporary ID. I mean, what do you think? I'm going to try to escape <laughs> on my way to court when you're going to let me out? You're going to get out a few and, minutes early, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Oh but then goodness. he told me, then he said the last thing I wanted to hear. He said, well, the judge might change his mind. Uh, so, yeah, so... <laughs> Come on. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so then they brought me. So they put me. The one guard, other guard, told me, um, uh, "Don't worry about it, Mr. Deskovic. This is the last time you're going to be in chains." So I, they put the thing on, and we, they took me in the court, uh, to, towards the court. And I'm marveling as I see the. Uh, I'm in the car. I, I know the town of Austin where Sing Sing is in. Mm-hmm. I. Uh, so so uh, I'm, I'm looking just how it is. A few feet of steel you know, separate me from other cars and people walking, you know, those the worlds kind of like run parallel there, but yet they were totally un, unaware. So I kind of remember that thought going yeah. through my mind. And they put me in the, uh, and they put me in the, the, the holding area. And uh, I'm, I'm supposed to see, you know, Barry Shack, I'm supposed to get the suit and everything, because that's what my lawyer had told me that that would happen in order to let me know that we were still on track and everything mm-hmm. was good. But like, Hours start to pass by, oh, no. and I'm not seeing signs of either one of them. Uh, the guards had to get guard had to give me this um, brown paper bag with lunch, with these couple of terrible sandwiches in it, and the small bag of chips that's mostly air. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Look, I'm going home. I don't need that." Right. And he you said, yeah, that. Well, <laughs> "Yeah." So uh, he said, "Look, I have to give this to you. What what you do with it once I give it to you is up to you." Mm-hmm. So I just took the thing and put it in the corner. But then as hours start passing by. I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, this thing is going wrong. So by the time I get back to the prison, it's going to be another three or four hours before I get dinner. They're not making anything special for me. So I need this. I need this. I better, I better, I better eat this. I better eat this. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Now that's a, that's a meal to remember. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, 
we're going I'm going to the courtroom and they told the, the bailiffs tell me, well, on one side is the your, your family and the other side is the media. So, um, you know, family members waving at me and everything. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I really wasn't paying attention to them. I mean, the overwhelming majority of them hadn't come to see me ever anyway. Wow. So I was more interested in the side of the room that had the media in it right. because they had crucified me the first time around. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 and I wanted to, you know, I told you so. That's you know, right. that type of yes. thing that I was thinking. Yes. You know, and uh, yeah, so I sat uh, so I s- sat down and the, you know, he told me the chef told me, Well, you're going you talk to I spoke to the judge, you're definitely going home today. So this judge right you're this supposed to be the judge that presided over your trial, but this other judge came out and like I and like he rushed out and you know my lawyer spoke and the prosecution spoke and they were both agreeing that the dna uh didn't match me it never did it matched the actual perpetrator mm-hmm. that person that person uh confessed to the crime as well so and then he like he rushed out so i got the distinct impression like he didn't want to have anything to do with this that he was just kind of like forced uh, into it uh-huh. uh so i got read, got up to get out and um, I take a step and then kind of like the enormity of the moment uh, struck me and, and, and I sat back down and, you know, I, I just, I heard my lawyers talking to me and they're not talking to me and, you know, about 20 minutes go by and they clear the courtroom out and finally um, uh, I got up and, I, and each step that I took towards the door with nobody stopping me got, got made it more and more uh, real. I remember there was a there was a court officer standing there and she was trying to be a uh, professional but you know I could see like the water was running in her yeah, eyes yeah. you know and I looked up and said thank you uh, thank you and she said uh, good luck mm-hmm. and I remember I went outside and I saw the sun and the blue mm-hmm. sky and everyone was clapping and everything mm-hmm. and uh, went to the press conference and, and there was a bunch of ton of media there and you know my first words actually were when it was my turn to speak uh, is this really happening yeah, like I thought that, like I finally did. I finally managed to lose my mind, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I'm going to recover from this delusion in a couple right. hours, and uh, I'll right. see the so so uh, bars and walls and everything else. Right. I'll still be right. Well, that that you know, that's the trauma of being incarcerated. Uh, you know, even for guilty individuals, it's a trauma. It's a real trauma. But you know, for the innocent that are you know that experience this it's it's absolute torture and how you know how do you ever i don't think you ever can truly recover from that um you know i I think that fortunately in in your life and in your case with your strength uh, and fortitude you know you've used it as fuel but you know it's it's still it's still a a traumatic experience that I'm sure you deal with on a daily basis. Um, But, you know, I'm just, I'm shocked that, uh, you know, that you were able to do this, that you were able to prove your case because I know it's, um, you know, like, like you said earlier, how a fellow inmate said, if, if he wins his appeal, it's like, you know, somebody else will win the lottery, but this whole thing is really like winning the lottery, uh, even with you having innocence on your side. And, um, you know, that's just, that's just another point that I want to convey to, uh, to our listeners is that we just really have no idea how many innocent men and women are currently 
currently sitting in prison because it is such a difficult process to make this known um, and to get anyone to listen to the story and then proceed and then win the appeals or any, you know, it's all a matter of almost luck, even though you have innocence on your side. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to jump forward a little bit just to the work that you're doing now. Um, and you're actually part of that change right now. And, uh, you know, it's so commendable that you've dedicated your life and your work to, um, you know, to exonerating others who have been in your shoes or, or are in the shoes that you were in um, all those years. Uh, do you want to uh, just give a little bit of, you know, your accomplishments, yes. please? Sure. So uh, I was released. I mean, I got the scholarship to get the bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree in criminal justice, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And um, I, I have a law degree now. I'm, I, I'm an attorney. So after about five years uh, of a really um, difficult time of trying to put my life back together again, I was finally uh, financially compensated. And I used some of the money to start the Jeffrey Duskovic Foundation for Justice, whose purpose is to free wrongfully convicted people. And we've been able to get 11 people home. And we also pursue policy changes aimed at preventing uh, wrongful conviction. And so we've been, we've been able to help pass uh, eight laws. I mean, three of them on our own. The other others were, were with a bigger coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which I'm an advisory board member of. And, you know, and uh, in pursuit of the dream of exonerating others as an attorney, my hence my foray into, uh, into, into law school so that I could sit at the defense table, rep, you know, represent some of the clients and make some of the arguments. So, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, you know that's really the main the main aspect uh, of it but you know i've become kind of a quasi public figure mm -hmm. i make frequent i make frequent uh media and new media uh appearances and you know i regularly meet with elected officials in, in new york pennsylvania and uh and and california and you know and then as a, and then as an individual and I've, and I've done a lot of speaking engagements across the country and internationally and then as an individual advocate i mean my you know, endorsements been sought in you know eleven different uh, political races where candidates were running on wrongful conviction prevention or even broader right. criminal justice reform plank. Right, right. Yeah, I know that you were um, rooting as I was for Matt Toporowski here in Albany. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's he he unfortunately didn't win uh, this this race but I, i'm sure you know he's still working for um you know criminal justice oh yeah yeah no, matt, matt was solid yeah. going into the race he, he had a nice body of work yeah uh you know gave the da a scare you know at mm -hmm. one point it was the race was called uh to, it was uh, said to be too close to call right and uh you know ultimately came up a little short mm -hmm. but but uh but matt matt is still involved in right. a lot of civil rights work a lot mm -hmm. of anti-wrongful conviction work justice reform work yes. so you know and he's gonna run again he's Absolutely. gonna run again next cycle around and he's got more name recognition mm -hmm. and I, I i feel very confident that he's gonna win the next he's gonna win the uh the next time and it's really mm -hmm. a key because you know the albany da uh david source never met a justice reform that he was in favor of at mm -hmm. all ever mm -hmm. right 
and uh yeah but i i definitely i'm i'm right there with you i i believe that uh matt will he will he'll bring it home next time and um you know i, I feel like the you know the next couple of years is just to uh you know it's going to give him just more time to show how much he is actually doing um he's he's still getting results you know it wasn't about the position itself it he his heart is in this fight um for reform and uh you know he's proving that every day so you know he's a, he's a good guy right he's a good guy and uh you you and i both will be there uh i'm sure campaigning for him when when the time comes absolutely mm -hmm. um absolutely i i i want to um uh switch gears a little bit and just you know we talked about how well i mentioned that we're just scratching the surface on wrong, wrongful convictions and uh, you know getting those cases out and proven and you and i had um you know a, a a conversation via text and you mentioned to me that you actually knew roy brown um you know the he was wrongfully convicted yes yeah no yeah. i did i yeah. knew, I, I yes i i knew roy brown while he was in in in, in prison so mm -hmm. really quickly it's a quick uh um uh, so I was working in, in uh, I was working in food service, mm -hmm. and, and one of the jobs that I had to do in connection with that was actually to serve out. So they give packets of sugar. Each person gets six packets of sugar in the morning, mm -hmm. and so I would see Roy Brown. He would come stumbling in yeah, at the end of the line, and he would say, "Hey, I remember." He said, "Hey, brother, listen, man, uh, uh, could you throw some extra sugar packets up there for mm -hmm. me? Uh, I." make coffee in my cell but I, I only have enough money to buy the coffee i can't afford to buy the sugar could you throw a few extra bags you know and it sounds silly to say that but you know like I, i'm taking a chance i, I yeah. can get fired right i can be kept in myself for as long as 30 days right. have to pay a five dollar fine and not get not get paid for it and I, I could lose my job altogether even beyond that so it was no small thing when i used to throw extra sugar wow. up there and uh on the line and he went the first time i i i did he was like oh thank you, thank you. Like, never mind hurry up and yeah put the thing in your pocket and get out of here <laughs> yeah just go make your coffee <laughs> don't mention it literally yeah, don't mention so it I yeah so i knew roy and then i did meet up with him i did see him uh a few times uh you know out i don't know i was in syracuse to do a speaking engagement and i i that was where he was living at at the time and mm -hmm. so um i did i did um meet up with him on the right side I said well welcome nice to see you on the right side of the wall exactly right? exactly there were 19 people that i did time with That's there were 19 crazy. people at the time with that were exonerated either before me or after me wow. frank sterling john bunn uh you know uh, john john colgan quite quite a few people that um quite quite, quite a few people just for um just for some context to share mm -hmm. to share with the audience, you know, per yeah. the National Registry of Exonerations. Mm -hmm. uh, so as of, from 1989 forward, uh, there are up to 2,805 exonerations. Wow. But remember, it's just the people that have made it out. That's not the number of wrongfully convicted people. That's the people that were exonerated. Right. Uh, New York State is the third in the country in terms of uh, uh, number of uh, exonerations. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a Wayne State study that uh, estimates 10,000 people are wrongfully convicted each year. So I had the terms of the percentage of uh, prison population mm -hmm. that's innocent. Uh, 
I think the number is around 15 to 20 percent. Right. I mean, there's other other places, oh, 5 percent, 2.5 percent, half a percent, 1 percent. That all seems low, but all they add up, there's no way to prove how many people are wrongfully convicted. You go and count the exonerations, but the anecdotal evidence seems to be flowing my way. I mean, it seems like there's an exoneration uh, every other day, uh, you know, sometimes two or three a week, you know, uh, right. somewhere in this country. And, and it- one person. It seems to be gaining momentum now because of the awareness. I just want to. I just want to um, double check. Uh, did you move your mic or something? Because it sounds like a little fuzzy. Uh, it's still fuzzy. I'm sorry. Okay, hold on. We'll we'll fix this. I'll I'll edit this out. How about now? Any better? No, it still sounds. I'm so sorry. Still sounds like fuzzy. Like almost, almost like muffled. It's a little bit better. It's still fuzzy, but I, I'm I don't want to I don't want to stop uh, I don't want to stop because I think we're going on a we we got a good uh, flow going. Um, I just ho- I just want to make sure that it's clear. I want your I want your message to come out loud and clear. Um, but I'm gonna I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna mention to the audience um, why I why I mentioned Roy Brown in, in our conversation. And that is because, um, you know, we talk about the degrees of separation with all of these things and how coincidental some things are. Um, and it seems to be, you know, less coincidental and more like there's a pattern with a lot of these wrongful convictions. And Roy Brown, uh, was wrongfully convicted by the same judge and DA who convicted my brother. Um, and that's, wow. yeah, that same judge and DA also had three other overturned convictions, exonerations. Um, and there are currently at least three others that I, that I have learned of who are, well, one sadly has passed away in prison and two others who are in prison, um, who claim uh, their innocence as well uh, under that same DA and and judge. And I'm just going to throw out, um, besides Roy Brown, who is in the National Registry of Exonerations, there is uh, Sammy and Willie Jean Thomas, um, and they were convicted in the 70s under Judge Corning. Um, But he wasn't a judge at the time, he was a DA. And then we also have um, Thomas Bianco, who was also uh, convicted under both the DA and the judge. So that's what they all have in common, which is uh, that that coincidental link that, um, you know, you have to my brother, uh, knowing, knowing another victim of those officials. Uh, fortunately, you know, fortunately, Roy Brown was able to prove his case and he's out you know well obviously he passed away a few years ago you know uh but i'm thankful that he at least passed away as a free man um you know but there are other men under those same those same corrupt officials who uh you know turned a blind eye suppressed evidence uh you know ignored dna all of all of the above um there are still other innocent people sitting in prison today and um those are they are the fuel my brother sean ryan shuck him a lot and damon hill they are the three men that i am fighting for uh for their exonerations 
And, um, you know, that that's what fueled this whole thing and in, in my own activism uh, today. So I, you know, you are, you know, you sparked, you sparked something huge. And I thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's good to, you know, for my, you know, the suffering that I went through, you know, just to, you know, just get some meaning out of it, you know, to know that that inspires people to keep going and to keep fighting, mm-hmm. you know, it all, it all means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's, it's work. It's, um, you know, it's a selfless type of work, but it's so, um, it must be so gratifying, uh, to, you know, to see, the fruits of your labor and, um, you know, to, to know the appreciation of that, that freedom for another person. Uh, and that's hopefully we'll see a lot more. And I think, um, I I do believe that it's, it's a growing trend. It's a growing awareness. I think even just platforms like this that are a little bit more casual platforms, uh, that speak to the everyday person, um, you know, we're just spreading the awareness that this occurs. This is a this is a broken system, and it needs repair, um, and it needs it post haste. Yeah. Well, look, everybody has a role to play. It all counts, and mm-hmm. you know, about the public is not really aware of the true state of the justice system. And, you know, the more we can make people aware, I mean, the more critical jurors will be, the more, you know, that people will want, will, you know, will, will want criminal justice reform. They can contact their senators and assemblymen on these bills are to fix the system, you know, are, 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 are introduced. So, and uh, I think also in terms of why we see these spike in, you know, uh, exonerations, I think that there are more and more people being involved. So I think that the more, I mean, even lawyers don't necessarily aren't aware of the world of wrongful conviction necessarily. I mean, they might be practicing a totally different area of law and it never really dawned on them. And maybe people, some of the people listening might decide to go on to become lawyers or investigators or paralegals or, you know, there's plenty of different disciplines that lend itself to this field. I mean, in terms of reintegration, there's the job of a social worker or a psychologist uh, within, a, within a nonprofit context. There's uh, public relations, grant writing, fundraising, social media. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, ways to, uh, to, to get involved as investigative journalism and you know, people doing podcasts or blogs or blog talk radio or even traditional media, the, you know, documentary, docu-series, all that counts. And the more that we make everybody aware of wrongful conviction, the better the better it is. I believe that each person that makes it out makes it a little bit easier for the next person. I mean, because, uh, you know, part of the, a big part of the problem is whether you have the facts or the law, even if you have the facts of the law on your side, uh, that's still only half the battle. A big part of it is whether or not the judge is going to, uh, you know, really do a critical look, or if they're going to do just the usual rubber stamp denial, that's which right. which often that's right. uh, happens. So the more the judges are aware of the wrongful convictions uh, cases, exonerations that happened, I think the more hopefully the more serious they take, you know, actual innocence claims, when they discover evidence that comes in front of them, they give it its you know just due and really scrutinize and really give a on the merits uh, decision rather than, you know, just feeling the crushing weight of a long, uh, a big case log and, uh, you know, and 
that type of uh, that that you know and how can we save how can we save the time work and money and energy that went into the original trial no, let's let's forget about that's gone already okay let's just right. look at is this claim correct or is it not right exactly yeah um and i think that's that's hopefully hopefully uh you and i are changing minds changing perspectives uh for you know regular folks who you know they obviously judges and attorneys are regular folks too on uh, you know outside of their official titles and um you know i i'm hoping that this reaches this reaches them as well and uh you know not only not only to hear it but to really you know touch their hearts because you're a human being and your suffering your suffering cannot be ignored your personal uh story cannot be ignored um the stories of the other exonerees that you mentioned the exonerees that i mentioned um and and you know the the list like you said is growing and growing and um it it can no longer be ignored and um we have to understand that this is not about this is not about crime and uh being tough on crime or even being accountable for crime because these people are innocent they have not committed a crime and i think once we get past that type of uh that hesitation you know you, you think of an incarcerated individual oh they're they're you know there's some type of stigma attached no we have to we have to remove that and the the human being has to be seen um, but I, I really, I really do. Um, I hope that that's what is, uh, that's what's changing in uh, in our society. Um, and as long as, as long as we keep talking about it, you know, there's a chance that a new, you know, fresh ears are going to hear this, and uh, there'll be a fresh perspective. And and I really hope that this continues for a, a long time until until we see solid change, uh, prevented preventative change. Um, and uh, I just I, I want to um, I, I, I don't want to keep you on too long. I know, you, you know, you've been so generous with your time. I appreciate that so much. Um, I just I, I, I wanted to out of curiosity in my my own brother's case, and I hope you'll uh, just uh, entertain this for a moment. I'm not sure if you've heard of William Vasquez and his exoneration. He was out of Brooklyn. I'm not sure if you're familiar oh, okay. with him. No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm listening though. Okay. Um, and this is totally separate. I, I've been making a plea um, on my podcast. If anybody uh, knows of him or has any way to contact him, he was he was in prison with my brother. This is another crazy, quote unquote, coincidence uh, with having to do with my brother's conviction. Um, this man was exonerated. And uh, while he was serving time in prison, get this, on my brother's conviction, uh, or on my brother's charges for that conviction, the wrongful conviction, this man, William Vasquez, was named as a co-defendant or co-conspirator, uh, and he was unindicted, and he went without any discipline, nothing. He was, he was uh, said to be, to have given specific crime scene uh, information, and he just you know, they, they just let that go, let that slide. And he, later on, he, it turned out that he was exonerated. Uh, so they were trying to charge an innocent man while in prison. 
they were trying to charge him along with my brother in that case. So it's just another interesting, um, an interesting connection to this whole, this whole saga that is unfolding. Um, so I just, you know, if you, if you ever hear of, uh, anyone that has to do with Mr. Vasquez, just keep me in mind if you, if you would, if you would. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. I know his attorney was Joel Rudin. Um, oh, I know Joel. I, oh. I know, I know Joel. Okay. Yeah. I know he's, he's a fantastic, uh, a defense attorney um so he was yeah he was joel rudin's client for his overturned conviction and uh i'm i'm uh, grasping at straws because it was such a long time ago for uh, my brother's conviction it's hard to you know some some people have passed away and it, i'm 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 just i'm reaching out to anybody out there anybody listening if uh, anyone has any connections to um Mr. Uh, William Vasquez, because he was uh, named in the case as well, and obviously an innocent person in that case. Um, but he, you know, he could also hold a key to get my brother back before a judge, um, you know. So just throwing that out there <laughs> for the universe. Sure. You know. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I just want, I, I want to ask you quickly before we go, do you have any um, political aspirations uh, for the future? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. I okay. do. I've thought about. I've thought about it quite a bit. I mean, I've thought about uh, running for uh, Westchester DA and mm -hmm. having a real conviction review unit. And yes. you know, you can you can do so much at, you know, as a DA. I mean, you know, you can you can divert people who are who are, are charged with uh, you know nonviolent offenses. I mean, incarceration doesn't have to be a penalty. Mm -hmm. You know, drug usage as a public health problem rather than as a uh, Rather than as something that you know you put people in prison for, imagine. Uh, I mean, certainly people from the jurisdiction where I was at, you know, going to the parole board. You look at their disciplinary record and what their accomplishments are. I mean, imagine somebody going to the parole board with a letter on on the DA's letterhead, urging them to urging the parole board to to release them. Yes. Uh, you know, similarly when there's clemency, you know, petitions pending and. You know, you can support those and then and weighing in as the DA, uh, in, you know, in support of various justice reform measures. I mean, in general, the District Attorney's Association of New York and all the individual DAs, they they oppose uh, justice reform measures. But imagine having, having the imagine having the advocacy world, the nonprofit sector, having the DA as, a, as an ally in that and, you know, raising up their voice as the DA supporting supporting measures and explaining why it is that you can really try to proliferate you know the uh conviction review units and that was something that da thompson did he held a conference one year and he had a lot of a lot of offices around the country sent like representatives and they were just trying to pro you know trying to proliferate conviction review units get the other people to to offer those uh, to open those offices and mm -hmm. we have a real conviction review unit that's not window dressing but it's real Mm -hmm. I mean, the results you can get are spectacular. I mean, we'll be talking a little bit about, you know, Brooklyn and William Vasquez. So, uh, 23 people exonerated in two and a half years under uh, Ken Thompson, and those people would have never gotten out had, had um still still been there. Right. In Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, and I think there are around 20, there are around 20 uh, exonerations there. Uh, and again, so those are just examples of what type of results you can get if you are, you know, if you have a real uh, conviction review unit. So based on that, I do have those uh, 
I do have those political aspirations myself, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think we're probably talking maybe, maybe you know. Uh, well, I mean, I just helped to elect uh, the current USSDA, uh, uh, Mimi Roca. Um, so I mean, she's uh, as I understand it, she she's really interested in just a couple of terms. So I think I'm probably talking about um, maybe like a seven-year plan is what I would. Uh, you know what, what I would imagine, but okay. uh, but at the point, you know, maybe I'll try to maybe I'll try to make the jump from you know the nonprofit sector to you know to um, you know political office. But the thing that makes me hesitate just a little bit, though, is as a country, we are so polarized now publicly. You know, to run for office, uh, to have a realistic chance of winning, you have to run on one of the major party That's labels. Right. And right. I, I would only be interested in doing it for real, like to have a chance. I'm not going to do it as a publicity stunt. Absolutely. So whatever whatever party, but see, I, I, I'm an independent, though. See, I, I, I vote for candidate and plank. I'm not a party loyalist. Same here. You know, mm-hmm. so, right. So whatever label I don't run on, what if I'm going there to serve the people, but then right. what, whatever party label I don't run on, the other half of the country is going to hate me because right. of that. So right. that makes me you don't hesitate wanna, a little bit. Yeah, you don't want to alienate. And that's something that I talk about a lot on my podcast, Um, you know, not alienating one side or the other and perhaps you running on either ticket um maybe that'll bring some unification you know as opposed to having people you know not like you because of your views and because of your actions um maybe it'll just bring some unification or some opening of minds and understanding and you know that's me being an optimist but right well no it's true it might be and that, that could be it. And I've already I've had some people also tell me, well, look, just do it anyway. And mm-hmm. just because the amount of good that you can do, you know, will outweigh any of that. And right. you know, no matter what you do, there's always going to be people that don't don't like you anyway. Even though, you know, I mean, in general, I don't think there are a lot of people out there that don't like me. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but uh, I'm sure people in all corruption really don't. Of but um, <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> yeah. beyond that, I don't think I'm really a, I don't think I'm a polarizing figure. I think right, that right. in general, I'm well-liked. And, yeah, I you know, agree. I'm not just me, I'm fighting for the ju- justice, not that to be popular. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice to be liked if you can do all that and still be liked at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, so those are all thoughts that go on, go on my mind. But, mm-hmm. uh yeah, those are those are all our thoughts. And mm. look, if you can win the DA race, I mean, you know, shoot for the run for, you know, maybe it's a run for governor That's after right. that at some point. That's right. And if you're the New York governor, if you're the New York governor, right, you, you got to go for it all at that point, That's don't right. you? That's you got it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I believe, but I, but I believe in trying to. I believe in trying to turn dreams to reality. So that's right. Because you've done it already. You've done the impossible. Right. So anything else, Correct. you know, anything else uh-huh. is just is Listen, just a plan. I'm playing with house money right now. That's I'm right. With house money right now. <laughs> you know, right. I was never really supposed to be back out here. I mean, they wrongfully convicted me and yeah. pretty much left me for dead. Yeah. You know, they never imagined their wildest dreams that I was coming back. <laughs> and know, come. So, and so, coming back strong. Right, right, <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah. So uh, why not? Uh, you know, why not? Why not? You know, why not? Why not just try to, you know, why not? Why not? Why not just try to live, continue to live uh, dreams. That's right. That's right. That's a that's a beautiful note to end on, man. Uh, this this <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful. Um, so yeah, you got you know you got my vote. I'm ready. I'm ready for you. 
right. <laughs> you know, you just uh, yes. you, you let me know. You you let me know. Give me the word, and we'll uh, we'll start that campaign. All right. All, All right. right. Well, listen. Thanks for having me on Thank again, you and so thanks much. for your thanks for your persistence as well absolutely okay? absolutely you have a great evening and uh we'll i'll provide links i didn't you know there's a lot of other stuff going on with you but i'll provide links to your documentary as well with this uh podcast so uh so people can learn a little bit more all right well, all right. Have a great night. all right you too take care okay okay bye-bye bye-bye